Welcome and bienvenidos to our new program called Next Generation, highlighting the many creative journeys of next generation leaders. In this series, I will bring you the stories of young leaders in science, literature, medicine, education, and business. Those who have chosen to reach further, travel farther, innovate, and take the risks often necessary to make a difference in their own lives, in those of their families, their communities, and someday in the world. My name is Julieta Garcia. For over 22 years, I had the great privilege of serving as president of the University of Texas at Brownsville. Through that work, I came to know the stories of many of our students that overcame great obstacles to attend college and through great sacrifice of their own and of their families, make it through. Getting to know their stories was always a great inspiration to me. So I thought I'd chase some of them down, interview them, and let you hear in their own words what they're up to now, what their challenges were, and what they hope to accomplish in the future. I promise you will be as inspired, amazed, and humbled by their accomplishments as I have been. Today we have the great privilege of being able to interview Charles Dameron. Chip Dameron, as he's known more regularly on campus, was hired as a member of the faculty at Texas Southmost College in the late 1980s as a member of the English department. Eventually, he became chair of the English department. Then he became uh, president of the faculty senate. He served as dean of the College of Liberal Arts after we became UT Brownsville. Um, He had chaired the self-study for reaffirmation of accreditation with uh, Southern Association of Colleges and Schools. And then he gave us the benefit of serving as vice president for academic affairs. Eventually, um, Chip asked to please go back to faculty, uh, which was his first love after all. And so he went back to teaching again after authoring over 10 books of poetry. Chip has been awarded uh, many recognitions, including a Teaching Excellence Award, Um, but most recently he was invited to become a member of the Texas Literacy Society. Um, He is finally an emeritus member of our faculty, and so I thought it was appropriate to interview Dr. Dameron because he helped prepare this next generation of leaders. So, uh, good morning. uh, Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Well, thank you. So we start today by kind of remembering where this all began. How in the world did you get to Brownsville, Texas from Dallas, I think, was your home? Well, I grew up in Dallas. I was, um, prior to coming here, I was living in Austin, working on my doctorate uh, in English. And uh, I finished and defended my doctorate in 1984, December of 1984. And so that spring I went on the on a job search and... Um, it, it was a it was a tough job market at that time, and I got rejections here, there, and elsewhere. But I had a couple of opportunities: uh, one in the Houston area, and then one down here. And uh, I had remembered from conversations with my sister that an old friend of hers from graduate school at North Texas was teaching at Texas Southmost College. His name is Wayne Moore, who uh, <laughs> uh, continued to be involved with the university for many years, and I know worked closely with you, and was a colleague of mine. Um, and so that was kind of an. And also, uh, I had been to South Texas, but not really spent much time there uh, or here. And uh, so I uh, decided to come down and um, interviewed, and was offered the job, and I was offered the job. Uh, at the other university, but decided that uh, 
coming down to the valley seemed like the best choice at the time. Um, you know, it was interesting. To be honest with you, my hope was to um, land a position at a university where I could teach a, a full range of courses. And, of course, at, the, at that time, in 1985, Texas Southmost College was a community college. And, um, uh, but I, it, it was a good opportunity, and I took it. And um, things mushroomed from there. And uh, quite, quite fascinating how it all happened. So you came to this kind of exotic, faraway place from Dallas, and uh, and from and from your experience in Austin, and as a member of the faculty, you got to see many changes. So you saw um, when we converted from Texas Southmost and UT Pan Am Brownsville to become UT Brownsville in partnership with Texas Southmost College. What was your role at the time? I was very active in the. TSC Faculty Association at that time. And once that development occurred, most of the faculty were enthusiastic about it. Some people, you know, were more nervous about it. But I think one of the really important agreements that had that occurred, promises really at the time, was that no one would lose their job through that transition mm-hmm. from either the TSC side or the UT uh, Pan Am Brownsville uh, side. And so faculty and staff had that assurance. And so that alleviated a lot of possible angst. So I was, I was involved with uh, other faculty leaders on the faculty association at the time in uh, meetings to uh, uh, try to smooth out the transition, to bring two faculties together, two staffs together, two administrations all into one, which we managed to do, I think, fairly effectively with not... I think a lot of bruised egos. Uh, some people had to uh, make some adjustments, but no one lost a position as a result. And uh, we went through a year of meetings. Uh, the acronym was PIAC, and I don't know if I can even remember the. It was Partnership Information uh, Communication uh, something or something another or another. <laughs> and it was, and we had, and as you will remember, we had it seemed like almost weekly meetings, but we had frequent meetings. We had subcommittees, faculty, staff, et cetera, et cetera, to uh, work out all the details. We had a year of transition, and then we started out all together. We we formed a faculty senate as, as a means for faculty engagement and uh, interaction with the administration and so forth. And I happened to have the honor or onus of being uh, selected president. So I served three years uh, during that uh, initial transition time, and we brought in a new vice president for academic affairs, a wonderful fellow named Philip Kendall, who came in, and I had an opportunity to work closely with him, and we had a good relationship. So the first several years, we adopted a whole set of policies governing all sorts of things like promotion, tenure, and other matters of interest to faculty. And by the early 90s, we were off and running. Again, enrollment increased, as, as you were suggesting, uh, uh, as you were pointing out, was going on in the, in the, in the late 80s, continued into the 90s. And uh, it was an exciting time because we were adding so many programs. That, to me, was one of the really key elements of, uh, uh, that, that made what we were doing so gratifying. So you played a very key role as a faculty um, association, then faculty senate president, because people would look, I remember people, I would be talking about something and people would look at you like, is that for real? Do you really agree um, that we were moving in the right direction? Of course, none of us knew uh, what was uh, ahead of us, but we all believed that we were doing the right thing for the right reason and that we would fulfill those promises that we had made of making sure that people were better off after than before. 
and that we would be providing more academic programs uh, and available for the people of the of the community. So that was our drive, and and you were key. You were key to that. I remember calling you the day before some announcement and saying, "Okay, Chip, here's what I can tell you." And, and you got to ride this wave with me. And you never seemed to hesitate. You listened carefully and made your own judgments, and then and then proceeded to move in a direction that kept you honest with the faculty and uh, and me honest in trying to fulfill our um, our those expectations. Okay. Well, I think we had good faith on all sides. I mean, that was key. Again, yeah. we uh, you know we I I, uh, I had always felt I could trust you and and. Uh, we had always worked well together at TSC, and when Philip Kendall came in and, and others, um, uh, it was clear that uh, we would be able to, that we could trust what we were hearing from the administration, and we wanted to be honest in, in response, and, and I think it led to good outcomes. You're right, and, and trust made, made all the difference in the world. So we were in this kind of interesting moment of redoing ourselves. It seemed like every five years we were off to a new adventure. Uh, sometimes it was internal to the university. Sometimes it was with others. Um, and and so once uh, having connected um, with with a UT Pan American at Brownsville, forming UT Brownsville, forming this new partnership. Um, and then we were off and running for about 20 years. And so during that time, your role uh, continued to grow, not only as a member of the, and a leader of the faculty, but also um, at the university. So you were department chair at the, of the English department, and then you became the dean of yes. liberal arts, and then? Well, and then, <laughs> then vice president for academic affairs. Right. But I, I would take one step back from there. Okay. As, you, as you will recall, um, uh, after the first several years of kind of getting settled and getting underway, we were faced with the issue of getting reaccredited uh, because we were uh, a, a an unusual um, because we had a partnership between a community college mm-hmm. that continued to have a governing board and a university that had a governing board, and we were trying to <laughs> ride sort of both horses in the same direction and. Uh, and so our creditors, the uh, Southern Association of uh, Colleges and Schools, uh, needed to accredit us as this different kind of institution. And I was asked, I'm sure, uh, as a result of, of your agreement by Philip Kendall in 1996 to head the self-study. And, uh, and, and I, I go back to that because it was important for the institution to succeed in, at that, with that step. And so for a year and a half, we conducted a, a thorough self-study, and we put together a report, and we had visiting team come. It was, to my knowledge, the first time that, that the Southern Association had put together a visiting team of, of, of community college um, folks and university folks. And uh, they came, they reviewed us, and they said, you know, you're, what you're doing is working and keep it up and uh, we had uh, we don't understand it but it seems <laughs> to be working <laughs> absolutely and so uh, and one of the things that gave me an opportunity to do is to interact with so many people across the institution so I think that helped a lot as mm-hmm. as I moved along after that time we, we finished that in 1998 and then in the early 2000s I became a department chair and then became a dean a few years after that. I I felt comfortable in those in those roles, um, largely because I 
already worked with lots of people in a variety of, of ways, not only faculty, but um, administrators and uh, lots of staff members. And so um, I, I, uh, you know, I, I much appreciated the opportunity to have that more expansive experience here. You know, um, chairing the self-study for reaffirmation of accreditation, and in particular ours because of the unique partnership that we were in, uh, is probably the best doctoral, quasi-doctoral <laughs> program that anyone yes. could ever take in how things work at yeah. universities and what counts and what matters in terms of criteria and standards with SACS. And I continue to tell those stories about if you really want to learn what an institution's about, and if you want to prepare yourself for an administrative position, volunteer for the mm -hmm. job nobody else wants, and that's, mm -hmm. that's with the self-study for reaffirmation yeah. and accreditation. You learn it all, more than you want to know. Well, it, it, that's true. <clears throat> that's true. But it, but it was so so valuable to me, and it was, uh, you know, gratifying that, <clears throat> again, not that... Uh, you know, all I did, I was kind of like the, uh, the the band leader or whatever, raising with my baton, sort of asking people to to do their work. We had we had a, a, a number of uh, committees that were looking into all sorts of of matters across the institution, and uh, you know, just to to uh, sort of make sure they were on task uh, and, um, uh, and and encourage them and be supportive and. And, and, you know, the result was uh, success for the institution. And it, you know, it gave us 10 years to continue to, uh, to, to do what we wanted to do and felt needed to be done here to, again, expand opportunities for students, which, uh, which was critical. I can, I'll, I'll also mention, I can remember at a point in the eight, late 80s when I talked to students, you know, who I had in sophomore classes because then they were going to be leaving TSC, and a lot of them were, would continue on and take classes at the uh, uh, Pan Am Brownsville, uh, with, with Pan Am Brownsville, which was on the TSC campus, so they didn't have to go somewhere else. It was just down the hall or across to another building, and I talked to them, though, about what their goals were, what they wanted to major in for on a four-year, for four-year programs, and I can remember students who were sort of sad that while they were really uh, uh, enthusiastic about you know, physics or, or psychology or one uh, one field or another, uh, Pan Am Brownsville didn't offer bachelor degrees mm -hmm. in those subjects. And so, um, you know, they would say, well, I guess maybe I'll go into something else. And I thought, you know, it's just a shame. Or uh, or I have to leave, you know, virtually leave the valley to, uh, uh, or or at least leave the lower valley to, uh, uh, to continue with their their interest. And for many students, that just wasn't feasible. And so it was uh, to me, it was uh, just a wonderful uh, uh, experience for us to expand so rapidly the number of bachelor degrees, uh, master degrees, and then eventually move into uh, doctoral degrees. So how, <clears throat> how interesting that you came down to teach English uh, to this kind of exotic place mm -hmm. and then ended up helping um, develop and nurture and grow the brand new university. And none of us would have imagined that that would have been our role. We were mm -hmm. first and foremost teachers of, of a field and then were kind of um, enticed into other new roads because the needs were so great here and all of us felt some sort of compulsion to meet those needs in whatever we weren't sure how to do it quite yet but but we knew that we had to respond to that 
um, call. And and it was wonderful that you stepped out of what you had begun to do as a profession. Um, so, but let's talk about that mm-hmm. now, because you, at the same time, you're still a, a professor of English. That's yes. what your love is, and and you're becoming a poet. When did Chip Dameron, Charles Dameron, become a poet? Well, I I started writing poetry when I was um, in college, an undergraduate, and you know the poems weren't very good. But uh, as I've told writing stu- students in, in in poetry classes that I've taught creative writing classes, you need to write a number of poems to learn how to learn how to write poems and to mm-hmm. learn what poems are for you. And it's just like someone going into um, uh, art. Uh, your your early paintings are probably not going to be ones that uh, museums are going to be interested in <laughs> or even uh, anyone to purchase. But um, uh, but you have to go through a process of learning. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I still have those poems. I don't really look go back and look at them uh, right now. But but I've got them. I, one day I'll pull them out again. I do every every so often. But uh, it I guess really in graduate school, um, I uh, became, uh, I think, more proficient uh, at at that uh, cra- at my craft, and uh, I started having some success, uh, sort of locally, and I started getting some poems published in some uh, regional publications, which is which is kind of the smartest way to go. You know, the poetry magazine and the New Yorker are probably not going to be interested in uh, poems by people who have not yet established their their uh, credentials. And so um, it kind of grew from there. Uh, I started a literary magazine with a couple of friends called Thicket in, in Austin in 1976, and we put out three issues. And, and that was uh, a valuable as well because I was interacting with a lot of people and need you know having to make judgments as an editor. And, you know, so that gets you thinking even more about what's, what's uh, working well and what's not working well and so forth. And uh, so um, I, I continued to write and publish and... When I got here, I continued, and, and in 1987, I had my first book come out. So, uh, um, and then I've continued on f- from then. Uh, so, how many books have you written? How many well, books? this fall I will, or late summer, this late summer or fall, my tenth collection of poems will come out. That's amazing. So you know it, yeah. Uh, so I just I keep at it, and then, and then uh, you know at some point I say I've got. I think enough, and I sort through them and try to put them in some sequence. And uh, I've worked a long time with a publisher, a small press publisher in San Antonio called Wings Press, and uh, uh, and uh, they uh, they love your stuff. Well, they do, they do, <laughs> and uh, so that's been uh, that's been quite satisfying. So I remember a conversation you and I had on the on the bench off of the arcade there, mm-hmm. off of Gorgas, uh-huh. when you said, "I've got to get back." to the classroom, and I've got to get back to my writing. And I was just vehement that, no, 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 we had much more work to do, and you just couldn't do that. And you said no, and you said it was such authentic urgency of kind of like, I'm going to drown if you don't let me get out of the water and get back into what I need to be doing. I've served my university, and you had, you served us well in all of those positions um, well, uh, in the Senate, and the, as a as the uh, as a dean, as a department chair, as a vice president, through tough times, through 
the times of great flux. And so I had no choice <laughs> but to say, yes, of course. <laughs> well, I appreciated your willingness to, to, to let me go back. Um, you know, again, I, I, I really love teaching and, and, and most of us do, uh, I think. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, you find when you're doing full-time administrative work, it's, it's hard to make room for teaching. And it, I was also finding it was hard for me to make room for uh, my poetry. Sure. Uh, it wasn't that I was, you know, we, I worked hard, everybody worked hard, but, um, but teachers work hard too. But I, what I found was when I was, when I'm teaching and I'm in my off time, I can, I can move into my sort of poetry mind. But I was having a hard time doing that with administrative work mm-hmm. because there were always sort of ongoing problems and issues to sort through. And even when I'd come home in the evening, you know, I'd still have that on my mind. You had the and, responsibility yes. always. It never yeah. Could turn and then the next morning, you know, there were lots of yeah. things to deal with and that affected lots of folks. And so uh, um, I, I felt like, you know, I'd I served four years as the as the uh, VPAA. And, and again, it, it, w- it was very rewarding, but I just felt. Um, at that point, I was uh, in my early 60s, I guess, and I felt, you know, this is probably a good time to step away and return to teaching and enjoy some years of doing that before I retire, which I did. So so now you've left administrative work. You've, you've been writing poetry. You continue to write it, and now you're back in the classroom, um, and, and you... you have had now hundreds and thousands of students go through your classes. Um, you have a couple of students that I'd like to ask you about that that are particularly interesting to me. One of them was Sandish Couture, and I remember going to Rancho del Cielo, mm-hmm. and Sandish was the, the student at Rancho del Cielo. I think he was the president of the Gorgas Science mm-hmm. Society at the time. He's the one that had the machete, and that was important. Uh, at Rancho del Cielo because he could he was to to find the trail the best path for us as we went through. Tell us about Sandish as your student and and what he's doing now. Well, Sandish was a student of mine um, back in uh, I would say the it was the early to mid '90s. Again, I didn't haven't gone back to to check it exactly, but it's it it was uh, it was back in sort of the early days of uh, of the uh, partnership. And uh, he was taking a Composition two class for me. I can remember that. <laughs> I can remember him. He sat uh, uh, right up, uh, you know, at the front uh, of one of the rows. Uh, he was an active participant. Um, Where was he from originally? He was from India originally mm-hmm. and Bangalore. And, uh, you know, I, I never really understood exactly how he came to us. Uh, you know, we, we, He was we, living with an uncle, ah, I think, that lived okay. here. Mm-hmm. Well, it was wonderful to have him. You know, and we welcomed having students from out of the area, out of the mm-hmm. country, and over the years we we did. I had a number, and and uh, and we were uh, fortunate enough to again have uh, folks come from different places to to add their perspectives and bring their cultures. and mm-hmm. And uh, I knew that Sandesh was uh, was very interested in biology. Um, he was a uh, he was a fine student. He was a good writer. Uh, he later had had made comments about how I, you know, how I played a significant role in improving his writing, and I, um, I appreciate Accepted that gracefully. I accepted it gracefully, <laughs> but he really didn't need a, a lot of my instruction. Mm-hmm. It, it just gave him an opportunity to practice, and I was able to give him feedback. Um, but then I was able to, you know, keep an eye on him after that. And again, at Rancho del Cielo, that wonderful uh, biological uh, station in the mountains of, of Mexico, 
where we would take students and, and occasionally have uh, opportunities to uh, retreat there as well. But um, wonderful experience for, for students, uh, biology students, as well as some other students, and Sandesh did play an important role. Well, after all of this, Sandesh continued. He got into um, uh, uh, photography and then filmmaking, and uh, he returned to India and worked on things. He came back. He worked on projects here in the Valley. He, he now he has made eight documentaries that have appeared <laughs> on BBC, the National Geographic Channel, the Discovery Channel. He is a National Geographic Explorer. I mean, he's really uh, uh, accomplished amazing things. And, um, you know, uh, we played a role in uh, helping him... Um, follow his dream and uh, hone his skills, uh, and uh, and so I I I think of him as someone who uh, was wonderful to have here and who's out now as an ambassador for uh, for for our institution. And Absolutely, and Sandish, uh, you know, was mentored also so carefully by Larry Loff mm-hmm. and the work that Larry had done as a biology professor, also at at Rancho del Cielo, and just as a friend. So, so both of you and many want to take credit for Sandish. We all want to say we touched him at some point. Uh, and every time he comes back, he wants to reconnect with, with everyone uh, that helped him on his yeah. journey. But this is really story. where it started yeah. for him and where the world's of um, documentary filmmaking began. Mm-hmm. He tells a great story of of how he bought a new camera and he was headed back to India to do this documentary. Had no idea how the camera was going to work. And so he took the time on the airplane to read every direction he could find it, find anything he could to help him figure out how to work the camera go. before he got there. And because of my Comp 2 class, of course, I taught him close <laughs> reading skills. Well, we'll give you all the <laughs> no, credit. I, I can't take much credit. It was just, it was a, it was a lo- delight to have him it, in it, the it, classroom. It, yes. um, yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah. So, okay, so then you had another student that took a completely different pathway, yeah. and her name was Anissa Longoria. Yeah, Anissa, and she's from the Valley, and so she's, you know, one of our, one of our folks, uh, young, youngsters in the area who chose to come to, uh, to uh, UTB uh, TSC. And um, she had taken a, an undergraduate uh, literature class from me. She actually was a bachelor. She got her bachelor's degree in psychology. So that was where she did most of her coursework. But she was uh, very interested in literature. She took, and so she did, I guess, I think as a senior, I had taken a... Um, uh, one of my upper-level classes, and then when she uh, got her bachelor's degree, she decided she she had a number of other courses uh, in uh, upper-level English. She decided to pursue a master's in English, but she had this strong uh, background in psychology as well, and so she did her coursework, and she asked me if I would help direct her thesis, and I did, and worked with also with Jose Garza, a wonderful mm-hmm. uh, colleague in English. And the two of us worked closely with Anissa, and it was interesting what she did. She um, she did a study of a novel by Jack London called The Sea Wolf, and what she did was she applied uh, one of Abraham uh, Maslow's theories to the the main character of uh, The Sea Wolf, and it was um, it was you know there was originality to it. It was very effectively uh, done, and we were very happy for her. Uh, she loved, and, and we also knew that she loved to do research. I mean, clearly, 
uh, in her graduate work and, and particularly in her thesis, I could see that. And so then there was a question about what was she going to do? And so she said, well, you know, I've always been interested in uh, the FBI and the work that they do. And uh, she said, that's where, what I'm going to apply for. Well, she did. She uh, was hired by the uh, uh, FBI and um, has, had, has made a career of it. And today, she is an intelligence analyst uh, uh, with the uh, National Gang Intelligence Center uh, um, at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. She's an expert in Hispanic gang culture, and um, she gives talks uh, around and, uh, you know, lends her expertise to uh, addressing some very, um, you know, serious issues that we have in this country. Um, Isn't that fascinating how someone can start out Mm -hmm. with a degree in in psychology, a master's in in English, and merge those two fields Mm -hmm. to create yet something Mm -hmm. by her own um, really, creation uh, prepares her for something that she's always kind of innately be interested in. We're going to have to follow up with uh, with both Sandish yes. and with uh, with Anissa. So they're exemplar exemplars of of just two of the hundreds and hundreds of students that you've had. Mm-hmm. I I run into people all the time that that uh, remember their days at UTB. And, of course, I get all credit and all blame for things. <laughs> but the what I enjoy the most are, are when someone says, and is so-and-so professor still there? Mm-hmm. He made all the difference in my journey. And you were one of those professors that constantly gets that I get credit for. Mm-hmm. Thank you for <laughs> allowing us to have people like, like Charles Dameron. He was he was wonderful. He helped me so much. So just know that, that I get some of your accolades. Well, but thank you. <laughs> and I, I welcome them all. So we, we're going to uh, now transition to uh, Dr. Dameron, Dr. Chip Dameron, as a poet. And I'd like to ask you if you would do us the great honor of reading uh, one of your show, short uh, poems called The Reading Room. I'd be delighted to. Uh, this is based on an experience I had um, one summer. Uh, it was a graduate class. It was just a wonderful, it was a small class, and it was just just a wonderful group because you're meeting every day. You know, you have that ongoing uh, contact. And so um, the poem is, again, comes out of that experience called The Reading Room. Far bigger than we need, desks for 40 or 50, We take a dozen and circle in on ourselves. Day by day, we listen to the voices that break out from the page, each shard of sound part of the mystery of why we gather at all. Maybe we are sitting by a stream, hearing as one the rippled rush of water again and again. Let us now bless the ventriloquists who fill out the room, who give us the ripened bounty of their verbing, May we turn our own tongues into trumpets and piccolos. May we tell of what we see and do not see as we feel our way along the banks of our living in the dark. Thank you so much for taking us into your world of poetry, for all the gifts that you've given us over the years. Um, your selfless dedication to um, to opening doors of opportunity for our students here in the valley, and for your friendship uh, along the way, it is greatly valued. Well, thank you. It's it's been a delight to to come today and 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 be able to do some reminiscing and 
and reflecting. Muchísimas gracias. Hasta pronto. Thank you for tuning in to Next Generation, a program highlighting the next generation of leaders in the Rio Grande Valley and beyond.